Hey, everybody, you are listening to the Tough Like a Girl podcast. I'm Nathaniel. And I'm Liz. And today we are taking a look at the first volume of Paper Girls. This was a comic published, uh, or at least collected in trade, in 2016. It was uh, written by Brian K. Vaughn, uh, with art by, if I can pull it, there we go. Uh, the artist was uh, Cliff Chiang, colors was Matt uh, Wilson, and lettering by Jared K. Fletcher. Uh, this was published by Image Comics, so this sort of steps out of the either aimed at younger people or Marvel or DC that we tend to do most often. Um, I think the last time we did Image might have been Witchblade. Oh, Witchblade! <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So this book is set uh, in 1988. And it deals with a group of four girls who are the titular paper girls. They're going about um, their morning uh, delivery. Well, first of all, one of them is kind of new. She just met. She ran into the other girls going on her morning route on, I guess it's the morning of Halloween? Or is it I the night? The, is it it's the, the night. It's the it's morning the, after. Yes, it's the morning following Halloween. Thank you. Yep. Um, and so... We said you wrote down their names, right? Yes, I can't I did. remember all of a sudden. So the main character, the new girl, is Aaron, and oh, yeah. then it's um, it's Mac, mm-hmm. Tiffany, and KJ. KJ. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So the four of them, you know, they start writing together, and then weird stuff starts happening. It starts as relatively low key weird stuff with some guys wandering around the neighborhood in sort of weird hooded robe things, and then. They find uh, in the basement of a house, which they go into because they think, uh, or no, they know, one of those rogue guys stole one of their walkie-talkies, and they're trying to track him down, and they come across this part space capsule, part, like, cosmic body horror-looking thing, Mm -hmm. and they don't know what that is, and then when they go back outside, all of the power is off, they run into these hooded guys pull off a hood, and they are not pretty to look at. They're human, but, like, something's weird. And then we have basically pterodactyls in the sky, and people are literally just vanishing. And it kind of spirals from there as the girls try and figure out, A, what the heck is going on? What can they do to try and uh, protect themselves and each other? Where is safe? And we get various players brought into this as time goes on. We learn more about the hooded figures. There's some other people who seem to possibly be behind what's going on. Volume 1 doesn't give us a ton of answers. It gives us a lot of setup and sets up Mm -hmm. the character dynamic and leaves on a cliffhanger. So this was obviously something, you know, designed to go on for a while after this. It does have the feel of something that probably had a planned story beginning, middle, and end. It just, it's not all contained in Volume 1 is all. Uh, So, general thoughts. So I will say the plot is intriguing, and I liked it in general. Like, I liked the weirdness of it. I liked that it slowly unfolded, and that we got some sense of what was going on. I really didn't like Mac as the leader of the Paper Girls. She kind of soured it for me. She's one of those tough girls who reveals herself to be pretty homophobic, 
pretty early on and just kind of awful um, and causes some issues. And I'm like, yeah, I just, I, I don't like it when there's this tough character that's supposed to be like, ooh, edgy, and they're just awful. So <laughs> I agree with you that I don't like her either. I don't think Vaughn was trying to be edgy with her, though. Well, maybe not that, edgy. Well, I think the reason she exists is because of a fundamental, in at least for me, kind of miscalculation in how Vaughn chose to approach this. So my pointing out that it's set in 1988 is actually really important because the vibe of this thing overall is very much trying to capture the vibe of basically the kind of R-rated movies that kids went to Anyways, in the 80s. It's going very hard for that vibe. That weird, jaded kind of thing going on. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think the miscalculation he did, I understand why he made the decision to do this, but I think where he made an error, and and I'm going to make a comparison to something else that I thought of while reading this. I'm going to make a comparison to Stranger Things. I can I can get that. Yep, because it is kind of the same time period, and the like. Ooh, it's it's sort of horror sci-fi. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I feel like it's a valid comparison, but specifically in regards to a character like Mac. Mm-hmm. So what something like Stranger Things does is it takes that vibe and those things in that era, and it brings them to you again the way that you remember them. What Mac feels like is an attempt to bring across the kinds of characters and people who existed in that time period as is. Mm. And it feels like Vaughn was trying to give what was prob- what probably would have been a more accurate depiction of that kind of person mm-hmm. in the year 1988. And I understand why he would have decided to do that. I think it was a fundamental miscalculation because what you end up with is that same kind of feeling when you go back and watch something from your childhood you haven't seen in a long time and you find yourself going, oh. Oh, that's problematic. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. It's yeah. the stuff that you had forgotten or that didn't register at the time. And he kind of sticks it in your face, mm-hmm. which... There could be reasons to do that. I'm just not sure it helps the story that she is that abrasive and that just, ugh. Because the rest of the girls are fine. And the fact that, I think it more bothered me that, like, had she not, had she been, like, KJ or Tiffany and been one of more of the, like, not the leader, I might have been more accepting of it. But she, she kind of was, like, the one plowing along and like leading the plot but i will say she did get some pushback from the other characters so she did a little which but still i still she she just soured it for me i mean that's the main thing that's my main criticism of it i really uh yeah no i didn't like her pretty much immediately i mean she's she's introduced pretty abrasively so yeah and like again i'm sure all of this was intended and she's probably supposed to rub us the wrong way a little i'm not sure he intended it to be (laughs) as much as it was at least for the two of us no um but yeah that that is admittedly a big hurdle especially considering she was she does come into the story fairly early and she is clearly at the very least the de facto leader of the three girls who already know each other Mm -hmm. um Let's talk, I want to talk about the art for a little bit because the, I actually quite like the art actually, style. The, the beginning on the dream makes me think of you and Lovecraft Country and how you didn't like that. What did you think of this whole weird sequence in the beginning? I, well, part of what I didn't 
Well, there's there's two things. The a big part of what I didn't like about the opening dream sequence in Lovecraft Country uh-huh. was that it first of all it felt like a way just to shove Cthulhu into the opening, which just felt like here here's the thing you recognize. My like, oh for God's sake. Um, and honestly, opening on a dream sequence, especially one that is literally by on page one already clear that it's a dream. Mm. I can roll with a little bit better because, like, the first image, it starts with Aaron holding this apple, and then it pulls it's back. It's a twilight image, yeah, <laughs> essentially. And, well, yes, but then it pulls back, and she's, like, on the moon or something because, like, there's the earth and the sky in the background, and then she's confronted with a with an angel with, or, or sorry, uh, with a, um, an astronaut with wings. And I think the other thing is there's actual interaction that happens here. Mm-hmm. In the Lovecraft Country opening, um, there's no interaction in that opening dream. It's all spectacle. It's mm. all visual. Here, because she interacts with them and there, and you can see how this sequence is specifically playing on her fears, her concerns, her family, mm-hmm. I'm learning about her in a way that with Atticus and that opening dream sequence of Lovecraft Country, I didn't feel like that was telling me anything about him that no. couldn't have been introduced in a less jarring and, in my opinion, kind of cliched fashion. Yeah. So while I would still say generally you probably shouldn't open on a dream, I would cite this as a better example of doing so. Okay. Um, but sort of coming back to the art, I I do like the art quite a bit, actually. it's It works for what they're trying to do, I yeah. think. Like the kind of like close-up on faces and like the, the kind of messy, unkempt hair and the characters. Like yeah. the darker backgrounds for a lot of things, I think it works pretty well. The designs I like, but I also just like the fact that the the art is very smart about when it goes detailed mm-hmm. because like we we've had this issue on some books where like there's too much there's more detail in the face that actually doesn't help there's there's a certain point where like the amount of detail actually creates a distancing effect mm-hmm. and it's better to keep in broad strokes so like when this thing gets really detailed with the art like say with the weird space pod thing mm-hmm. that's super detailed but like it makes sense because this, what is that thing? It's this, intriguing. Yeah. This is wrong. Let us let us have every line and curve to show you how wrong this is yeah. and how wrong this thing looks. So it's um it's it's well balanced, I think, visually. And like I I would praise the the pacing of the story, and I think the events are intriguing because like we've got a lot, there's a lot introduced here. There is time travel there's possibly dimension jumping there seems to be what amount to something along the lines of lovecraftian horrors we've got some kind of shadowy organization going on we've got so much happening and so little being properly explained but because it's kept properly through the eyes of the main characters mm-hmm. where we don't know what's going on but we can follow them through what's going on which is a good way to balance a deliberately confusing story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's true. Yeah, because if you're going to tell a confusing narrative, you need to at least have characters that we can understand, and we know why they're doing what they're doing, even if we can't understand what the hell's going on around them. And I do like the other three girls just fine. I think, again, and I, I, again, I like pretty much most of it except for Mac. <laughs> yeah, I think part of what doesn't help her case is I'm not sure she makes a decision or takes an action that has a good outcome. No. Like, I mean, she's responsible. I mean, it's not on purpose, obviously. For no, but she is ultimately responsible for a character getting shot. shot and uh, yeah, there's just a series of poor choices she makes that like don't help anything. Yeah. About, about the only thing she did that was in any way helpful was to intimidate some jackass boys who were harassing Aaron at the very front end. But then all she did was... The way she did it was also horrible. So yes, that, that didn't help that didn't, that didn't really help in terms of, oh, you're a terrible person. But, <laughs> you know, as far as narrative function, that was the only thing she did that I think had a positive outcome. And after that, everything she did was either neutral or made things worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it certainly doesn't help her character at all. So yeah, and that's not to say you can't have characters make mistakes and make bad calls, but like when when she's already abrasive and she's making bad decisions, it kind of becomes a case of me going, "Why am I putting up with you?" Yeah, because like if I either liked you better as a person. Or I could agree with your decisions more. I could be more forgiving of the other. And why are other people putting up with you? Too? Yeah. Like, why, why are we following this girl? Because yeah. she was the first paper girl. Like, okay, but uh, no. <laughs> yeah, so what? She's kind of awful. Yeah. Yeah. She, I, she does do a lot to rub me. I kind of... When she when she got introduced, I I, I I introduced this topic. Now you're like, yeah, yeah, she's the worst. Well, when she gets introduced into the story, my enjoyment kind of nosedived, and it kind of gradually pulled back up because the story was interesting and mm -hmm. interestingly told. Yes, the plot is the plot is quite intriguing, and there's a lot going on. And again, I like that. It's just she she has that note that sours the whole yeah the whole melody essentially <laughs> and and again the fact that it's like it's set in 1988 makes me go okay Vaughn I know why I get why because yes this kind of character was a fairly prevalent in media at the time mm -hmm. and probably not a million miles off from the way some youth just were yeah and like enough of them that it like a lot of people at that age, at that point in time, probably knew somebody like this. Yeah. So I get it, but I'm sorry. I don't want it. Just because I understand it doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> we don't need to go back to those No. People. No, we don't. Yeah. And I think I... Part of the thing is I think it doesn't help because that leans into this whole idea of, like, recreating the societal feel of the 80s. But I don't think the story benefits from that. The main thing that helps this out in terms of it being set in the 80s is just sort of giving it a, you know, giving it a little bit of that, again, for lack of comparison, better comparison, Stranger Things vibe, but also explaining why they um, don't make some of the logical leaps that people today might make. 
or you know why the tech level is what it is, and mm-hmm. and things like that actually impact with the narrative. With the walkie talkies, yeah, with and the all with, that. with the walkie talkies, and which we are using at work, so maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> them. And and things like that, you know, that those are places where setting it in the eighties actually impacts the story, but bringing eighties culture doesn't actually help. I don't know. And maybe it gets better later. Maybe the character gets better later. I don't know. But this is what we've got. And just... Nah. Don't like her. <laughs> yeah, no. Don't like her at all. Yep. But I guess we've we've dwelt on her a lot. Um, I do kind of wish that we'd had more variety in the weirdness that had gone on. Because what we basically got is is people disappearing to, I guess, factions of time travelers mm-hmm. and these giant giant dinosaur birds. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it. I mean, maybe more weirdness gets introduced later, but I was a little bit disappointed when they look up in the sky and it's just a flock of these dinosaur birds. And then we never see really anything else that strange. You know, like... What, why is it just that one thing? Why can't we have a huge variety of weird creatures? Like, especially in a comic where there's no, there's no effects there's, budget. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. I mean, maybe they're building up to it, and, Which they might well be. But it is one of those things where I get... And this is nitpicky of me. I know that. I'm, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to blame Mackenzie. I'm going to blame Mac. Go for it. Just blame Mac for everything. Uh, But this is a nitpicky thing for me. It annoys me when a story, um, you know, a writer, whatever, does something with the narrative that gives them license to go nuts and then doesn't take proper advantage of that. If if, if you want a counterexample... Baby, did they not go Gotham enough for you? Oh, no, no, this is not Gotham. If you want a counterexample... Uh-huh. The the finale for Gravity Falls, <laughs> it's called Weird Mageddon, and it lives up to that name. Oh, I have no doubt that, that they go full throttle. That is a show, and that is a story where it's like, we wrote ourselves a blank check to do literally anything. Here's not one thing you haven't seen before. Here is a ton of stuff that you have never seen. <laughs> and, like, that's what I want. If you're gonna if you're gonna write yourself a blank check to do anything, mm-hmm. and then you just do a couple of things, I'm kind of like oh, a little bit. Aww. And actually, I want to check something really quick while I'm. So you about had it. you knew this author from other things, right? Yes. Okay. So while and you're we, checking on that, so there's another book that we've got on the docket that is by this writer. Oh, what is that? That's Saga. Okay. Oh, right. And I've read the first volume of that. And funnily enough, Saga is a much better example of taking advantage of the fact that this setup lets you do whatever the hell you want. And you don't have to justify the weirdness. Whereas this feels way more restrained and as a result, a bit less interesting to me. So I know Vaughn has the imagination to do this, but he just... He can go Weirmageddon? Yes, he can, but he just doesn't in this one so that's that's a little bit and i think actually i think he wrote the mystique volume that we you might be right that we read as well and that's the other thing i'm checking Mm. um do 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 do. yes yep 
he he wrote uh, he wrote that first volume of Mystique that we read, which was pretty good. So yeah, yeah okay. So like I. I know that I can jive with his writing better than this. Ah, but alas. I think, I think that's kind of all I've got. Yeah, that's pretty much all I had to say, too. It was a nice try, but... The story was interesting, but I don't... I, like, knowing that Mac is part of the core group, I dislike her so much that, like, I don't really want to read more. Yeah. <laughs> And maybe that's maybe Can she just like get lost in time. Or yeah, maybe that or seems get eaten by a pterodactyl. Maybe it seems unfair because it is an ensemble thing. It's like, well, you only dislike one of them. Like, yeah, but I really dislike her. Yeah, that's fair. That it can it can really just turn you off something. Yeah, so. yeah, it kind of does. All right, so that's Paper Girls Volume One, and we'll wrap up on that and give us a, a minute for a promo break, and we will be back with listener feedback. Need a podcast talking about weird stuff? Well, then we've got just the thing for you. Into the Weird, a podcast chronicling the madness and magnificence of the mighty Marvel Bronze Age of comics, featuring the voice talents of Mr. Billy Delicious. Hola. Mr. Herman Hellstrom Lowe. Hey there. And straight from the long box of darkness, his infernal majesty, Dormammu. How are you? And many more. But wait a minute. You might be thinking, aren't all comics infused with a grain of weirdness? I mean, Reed Richards can stretch every single part of his body, right? And why did Ultron design the vision with working genitalia? Well, you would be correct, but Into the Weird isn't just any regular comic book show, folks. We focus on the really bizarre. Here are a few examples. A sword and sorcery barbarian grown spontaneously from a jar of peanut butter. A duck running for president of the United States. Benjamin Franklin playing hide the sausage with Doctor Strange's girlfriend, Clea. A giant-sized man-thing lamenting the death of a clown. A serial killer obsessed with killing only fools, dressed as cavalier with laser guns after witnessing a priest fornicating. And so much more. So if you like the wonderful weirdness of the Bronze Age from 1970 to 1985, and characters such as Ghost Rider, Morbius, The Defenders, Man-Thing, Son of Satan, Skull the Slayer, Kill Raven, Howard the Duck, and the weird granddaddy of them all, Dr. Stephen Strange, then this is the show for you. ITW's on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and TuneIn. Hit subscribe and join us for a comic-filled jaunt into the weird. Hey there, folks. Welcome back. So we are going to take a look at the uh, customer, listener (laughs) feedback uh, from the previous episode where we took a look at the first volume of Phoebe and her unicorn. So our first comment comes from Tim Price. I agree. This is a cute strip. I've come across it a few times, but not enough to add it to my daily reading. But it's fun enough stories and characters, so definitely enjoyed hearing you both discuss it. Other comic strip collections I've read have all done the same thing you've discussed. Print them exactly in chronological order, including the Sunday strip, even if it's unrelated to the weekday story. I can't think of many or any that deliberately rearrange the strips for the benefit of the ongoing story, probably because the syndicated strip industry doesn't recognize it. I suppose that's fair, but like, 
this is a webcomic. There's no, there's no paper syndicate dictating it. But yeah, that, that probably would have explained it before. Anyways, um, he said, either your strip is a soap opera where Sunday is always part of the same storyline or your gag a day, in which case the order doesn't matter. Which is crazy because as you said, Calvin and Hobbes did long story arcs Monday through Saturday and Sundays was, Sunday was always its own thing because s some papers would only include Sunday. Sorry to see things haven't changed since I was buying these collections in the 90s and 80s and 70s. No, I'm not a boomer. Ah! <laughs> oh, a little clarification on my Shuri comment. I wanted her series to be less strongly tied to recent Black Panther comics continuity, but I loved her interacting with the other Marvel characters. In later issues, she meets uh, Kamala Khan, a.k.a. Ms. Marvel, and uh, Miles Morales' Spider-Man, and it's wonderful. There, I'm done. Thanks for another great show, my punchers, and thank you for mentioning my podcast. I really appreciate the support. Absolutely, Tim. Hope it's going well. And speaking of Shuri, I just had a fifth grader that really got into that comic, so he was Sweet. like, read it in one day. Nice. All right, our next um, comment is from Brian Linton. He says, thank you for this refreshing dip into a graphic novel with a lighter tone, which we kind of needed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen it on the shelves in bookstores, but have never picked it up. I'm a fan of The Last Unicorn, admittedly the Rankin and Bass animated movie, though I keep meaning to read the novel. Do it. I need to, too. <laughs> and was interested to hear about Peter Beagle's endorsement of the series. I was also interested to hear about the Kelvin and Hobbes-like dynamic between Phoebe and Marigold. So it has two things going for it, as far as I'm concerned. It might be fun to check out it out someday when I'm looking for some light fare to read. It's it's a good breezy palate cleanser to yeah, other stuff. It's yeah. uh it's it's cotton candy. It's nice. Sometimes you need that. Yeah. Next up we have a uh, a comment from Carolyn. I picked up volume one of Phoebe and Her Unicorn some time back because I'd seen some of the strips and enjoyed them enough I thought it was worth checking out further. But it just didn't take for some reason, and I wound up setting it aside. Your review encouraged me to go back and give it another look, and I'm glad I did, as I uh, found a fair lot to like about it. I agree, Phoebe's dad is a lot of fun, and it'd be nice to see her mom's art. Also, I think the use of font to indicate an accent is a clever touch. Uh, Todd the dragon is adorable, and Max has a lot of potential. As for Phoebe herself, she does have a bit of a Calvin-esque attitude to her, doesn't she? And Heavenly definitely has Hobbes's air of superiority. <laughs> yes, indeed. I may have to check out further volumes. A little a bit of a treat for Liz, who was looking for that Calvin and Hobbes in girl form energy. Close to a decade ago, someone created a short tribute strip called Hobbes and Bacon. The conceit is that Calvin and Susie got married, had a little girl named Bacon, who inherited Hobbes when she was scared one night. Someone collected them and the tribute strip... Uh, to that in a gallery, here's the link. And yes, you can go to the comment section on that episode and find the link right there. I hope you like it. Uh, all the best to you both. Can't wait to see what's on next month's docket. So had you had a chance to check I that link out yet? No, but I love that their child's name is Bacon. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kelvin would name his, his daughter Bacon. Oh yeah, he totally would. As would Ron Swanson. <laughs> oh, yes. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Tim Price uh, replied to Carowind's comment saying, haven't seen Hobbs and Bacon before. Loving it. Thank you for sharing, Carowind. Yeah, I have checked them out. They are, they are very sweet. I mean, there aren't that many of them. It was just done as kind of like a, initially a one-off tribute thing, and then some people did a few other things to follow up on it. But it is, it's cute, and it's sweet, and it's... I'm always kind of iffy about Calvin Hobbes tribute pieces because I know how adamantly against that sort of thing Bill Watterson yeah. was and probably still is, but who knows? He should be. No, no, nobody can find him. Calvin and Hobbes is sacred text in my book. <laughs> yeah, but I, I felt like this was this was a much more respectful form of that instead of just taking the characters as he tended to do them and doing something else with them being like it's a tribute it's like no here's something else like obviously coming off of that but it, it felt it felt like something i was much more comfortable reading even knowing his attitudes or that kind of thing am i saying he'd approve of it no probably not but i i felt fine reading it i'll i'll, I'll definitely be checking it out um and our last comment is from liz ann oswald Impressive podcast. Most impressive. Hi, Liz. Hi, Nathaniel. Sounds like this was a fun comic. Uh, though the only web comics I read were Girl Genius and LFG. Anyway, this one seems pretty cool. Glad to hear y'all found characters you can see yourself in. It's a decent art style and a non-binary unicorn. Cool. Yep. So. Um, I don't know L LFG. Uh, Girl Genius is on the docket. Part of what keeps bouncing it back, though, is the volume I have is an omnibus, or it's the first three volumes collected. So it's. I think I did read it a while ago, so I would just be skimming it again. Well, maybe we'll get away with it then, because I part of why I've been putting that one off is it's a bigger ask. Yeah, I've been going back to school this past month, so and going back to school slash work rather. So yeah, it's. I, I forgot a lot of things about Paper Girls because I was like, it was two weeks and five years ago. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, well. So thanks everybody for tuning in. Uh, we don't know yet what we're doing next month. Um, oh, next month's October. Oh, yeah. Should we find something spoopy? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. We might. No promises. No. Yeah. <laughs> So thanks everybody for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Tough Like a Girl is a Council of Geeks production and is presented on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Comments can be left on fireandwaterpodcast.com and you can support the network by finding us on Patreon. This particular show was supported by Carolyn and Brian Linton. Our logo art was created by Nick Buxom and our theme music is by Erica Dreisbach whose other works can be found at ericaricardo.com. Bye.